Well, welcome back to our series, Looking Unto Jesus, where I uh, choose some of my favorite Puritan authors and Reformed authors and read a section from, um, from their books, from their literature. And I'm going to read today from uh, one of my all-time favorites. It is a, um, he's a 17th century Puritan, and he's named uh, John Flavel. And here I have recorded uh, something that um, I have referred to as a, a bargain between the father and the son. And what John Flavel is doing is simply setting forth um, what we know as the eternal counsel of redemption, that even before the fall of mankind, before the foundation of the world, God had already planned, determined how he would save us through the life, death and resurrection of his son. And so I've called this the, the father's bargain, and it beautifully illustrates the doctrine of propitiation. So I'm going to read it now. Flavel writes. Here you may suppose the father to say when driving his bargain with Christ for you. The father speaks. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? And thus Christ returns. O oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand shalt thou require it. I will rather choose to suffer their wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. The father responds. But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last mite. Expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare thee. The son replies, Content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, though it impoverish all my riches, empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Now let's look at a few great truths about the doctrine of propitiation that are set forth in, in what John Flavel writes here. First of all, the father so many people have a wrong understanding that that the father had determined to pour forth his wrath upon the sinner. But the son stops the father, works against the father, does whatever he must do in order to appease the father. And that is simply not true. Never forget in John three sixteen, for God. Speaking of of not just the son, but the father and the spirit, for the father so loved the world that he gave his only son. Our redemption is first and foremost the plan of God, the plan of the father. So he says. My son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. That's us. You and I, through our sin, we have ruined ourselves. And it says, and they now lie open to my justice. You see, God is a loving God, but he does not love at the expense of his justice. 
He must be both loving and just. And when he loves, it must be in perfect agreement with his justice. And you can see why now sin presents such a problem. He says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice, that's divine justice, demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. What shall be done for these souls? Now, this is, is one of the most important truths in all the scriptures. As a matter of fact, even though you don't hear much about it today, if, if you were to say, what, what is going on in all of Scripture? All of Scripture has to do with this one thing, the revelation of the attributes of God in perfect harmony and in complete fullness. Now, here's the problem. Man has sinned. And the divine justice, the very justice of God requires punishment. And yet God is also love and desires. He pities the sinner. He desires the salvation of the sinner. But if God is just, he cannot simply pardon. And so the question throughout all of Scripture is how can God be just and yet justify wicked men? How can he how can he be true to his holiness, his justice, his truth? And at the same time, manifest his love, his pity, his mercy, his grace to the sinner. And the answer is only found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He goes on, the son answers, oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them, then rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their surety. He will be our substitute. If you do not believe that Christ came as a substitute, not not just a teacher, not just some spiritual leader, but he came to to stand in our place, to bear our sin. To die under our penalty, if you do not believe that, then you're not believing orthodox Christian doctrine, you're simply not Christian. He says, I will be responsible for them as their surety. Now, look what he says, bring in all thy bills that I may see what they owe thee. Bring them all in, that there may be no after reckonings with them. Do you see here the perfect work of Christ? That once he bore our sin, once he suffered on that tree, and once he died, he didn't just pay for some of our sins. He didn't just pay for our past sins. He paid for all our sins, past, present, and future. When he took the cup of God's wrath, and he drank it. It's as though he turned it over and not one drop came out. There's nothing left for the believer to pay. He is perfectly and forever immutably reconciled to God, but only through the person and redemptive work of Christ on Calvary. He says, at my hand, thou shalt require it. I will rather choose to suffer their wrath and they should suffer it upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. I've listened to so many Easter sermons where the preacher will talk about um, what was done to Christ 
in the garden by the soldiers and then afterwards the trials and the shame and the further punishment by the Roman soldiers and the rejection of Christ by his own people, the Jews. And they'll talk about the cruel cross. They'll talk about the nails. They'll talk about the beatings and the crown of thorns, but they miss the whole point of the cross. We are not saved merely because the Romans beat up Jesus, placed him on a cross, and killed him. We are saved because on that cross, Christ bore our sin and all the just and holy wrath of God that should fall down upon me and fall down upon you throughout all eternity for our crimes against God. At that moment on that tree, that wrath fell on Christ. As it says in Isaiah, it pleased the Lord to crush him. You see, that's what Christianity is all about. God and his justice. Well, because of it, we're condemned. But then God in his love becomes a man and lives the perfect life we could not live and then goes to that tree and he he pays all the penalties for our covenant breaking. He absorbs the wrath that he himself pours out. In our place, in the place of his people. I had a Bible study last night with my children and we were in Micah chapter seven, where God says that he will trample our iniquities and he says he'll roll them up in a ball and cast them into the sea. And I told my children, I said, you cannot understand this passage apart from Christ. God didn't just simply trample our sin or roll it in a, into a ball and cast it into the sea. God placed our sin upon the substitute. Jesus Christ, and he was crushed. God placed our sin upon Jesus Christ, and he was cast into the sea of God's wrath in our place. And, and I can tell you, as I told my children, this is why I'm Christian. This is why I, I, I have to keep going. This is what makes men and women of God, God's prisoner. The love of God manifested in what Christ did for us on Calvary. It goes beyond the mind to comprehend and beyond the words of preachers to communicate. He says, Lord, bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand thou shalt require it. I will rather choose to suffer their wrath than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And then the father responds, but my son, if thou undertake for them, if you stand in their place, thou must reckon to pay the last might. Expect no abatements. When we used to travel on the Amazon and, and other rivers, but particularly the Amazon, it's so wide. And sometimes storms could come up so quickly that if you were in the middle of the river and you were in an open boat, the storm could sink the boat before you got to shore. And so when you saw those clouds coming and you, you felt the rain pouring down, drilling down, you would pray for an abatement that somehow it would calm, that it would be extinguished. And what the father is saying here, if you're going to stand in the place of my people, then expect no abatements. You must suffer wrath until you pay the very last might, the very last cent. And then he goes on, the son responds, content, father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it. You know, one of the things that people don't understand is that 
There are so many reasons why Christ had to be more than a man, more than a demigod, more than an, more than an angel. That he had to be God. One is he had to be God that he might offer a, a, a sacrifice of infinite value, but also who but God could withstand the wrath of God. The wrath of God, the Bible says it melts mountains, it dries rivers. And yet Christ on that tree, especially those three hours of darkness, it's as though he was shut up in a room while billow after billow of the wrath of God that should have been mine and yours poured forth upon him. He says, Father, let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I'm able to discharge it. And though it prove a kind of undoing to me. Though it impoverish all my riches, remember, though he was rich, he became poor and he did so for your sake. Though it empty all my treasures, yet I am content to undertake it. Why? Because he loved us. Why did the father give the son? Because he loved us. You see, this is not the father against the son or the son saving us from the father. This is the father saving us from the father and the son saving us from the son and the spirit working to save us from judgment. The three persons of the Trinity were in perfect agreement with regard to the judgment we deserve. And they, as the old Puritans would say, they devised or contrived a plan even before the fall of man, even before the foundation of the world. That all the attributes of God would be manifest to angels and men in perfect harmony, but in only one way through the cross of Christ. When you look at the cross, do you see that God is holy? Yes, he is holy. Do you see that he's just? Yes, he hates sin. How much does he hate sin when his own son bore our sin? He crushed him. Do you see love? Yes, you see God substituting himself for the sinner and dying in the place of the sinner as the God man, Jesus Christ. You see, this is what causes us to press on. This is what causes us when we fail to get up and start all over again. This is the reason for our faith and for our endurance. Never be distracted, young Christian. Never get distracted. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, but not merely Jesus as the teacher or Jesus as the healer. Fix your eyes upon Jesus on the cross. The propitiation, the sacrifice for your sins. So many saints down through the ages have suffered so many things like Polycarp when he was tempted when he was he was begged to turn away from Christ. He said, I cannot. And the reason why he could not deny Christ is this very reason right here. What Christ did for us on that tree, let it be the thing that controls you. And let it be the thing that gives you comfort when like me so often you fail. That no sin committed by the believer is more powerful than the love of God manifested in the cross of Christ. Well, we've looked at this. I must make an apology. There's so much more that could have been said. It could have been said in a better way. 
But I want you to see Christ. And I also want you to see. Um, this right here is the reason why. Many of us still read very old books. God bless you.